Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today we have our 2024 MLS season week one review. There's got to be a better way to build that one to spread the hype, but I don't have it. What I do have is two co-hosts with me today. Here with me to spread joy and enthusiasm for the start of another MLS season is Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Guys, we did it. We're one weekend already. We survived. There were 47,000 games on this weekend, and we did it, fellas. I'm proud of us. There we go. We did it indeed. There's that enthusiasm. Joe, here with us to pull that enthusiasm out of the water and murder it like an alligator death roll is David Goss. Hello, David. Week one's done. I already know who's going to win MLS Cup. I already know who's the best team. I already know who has to get fired. That's all you need is week one. Stop watching. Everyone, stop watching right now. So this does seem... Like a a point of, if not contention, then a point that we can address is how much should we be drawing from these uh, week one games? How many conclusions? How many things can we know for sure? And it feels like the answer is very, very little. Joe, what is your approach to week one? Is it sort of just hmm. checking to see what your hypotheses might have been and how valid they appear? Are you holding off any sort of judgment? Are you jumping to conclusions? Are you like David Goss and saying this person needs to be fired now? <laughs> Yeah, Goss always is reading too much into week one. I mean, that's just his whole thing is he's all the way in on week one from the start. My my thing with the beginnings of of seasons, right? Not just MLS, any any league, any season, any sport, whatever it is, right? You can't have a one size fits all approach. Like this is not a a hoodie that's going to fit everybody. You have to go and look at the specific game that's happening and the two teams and say, what is the state of this team? Do they have right now? What looks like their preferred lineup? Are they still missing you know, big-time offseason signings because of visa issues or injuries or whatever it is? Who's on the field? Who's coaching this team? How much is this team going to look like the one we see in September or not even September? How about in April? And for some teams like Columbus Atlanta, we saw almost full-strength sides, and we can read into that game and the relative strength of those teams and other matchups. I think about even how Inter-Miami are still trying to find their form. Cincinnati missing key players. It's going to take a little longer for some of those teams to really come around and for us to to get a great picture of them. But it very much for me depends on the specific game and the specific team. Guys, Doyle a long time ago uh, was on this program talking and I I think I asked him. It was a mistake. Uh, I asked him then uh, what week he feels like he can start to draw more lasting conclusions when does he feel like he knows these teams well enough to say like they're going to be good they're going to be bad here's what they need and i can't remember if it was week seven or week 10 is that about where you are when it comes to major league soccer unfortunately like joe said it's still conditional it depends on the team it depends on if it's a team that's going to make a ton of summer signings depends on if a player gets a visa it depends on if that team's playing in Concacaf competition and therefore the first half of the season is different um we're going to talk about Minnesota United in a minute. Like that's going to be a different date than it is for everyone else for this season because they're bringing in a coach this week. So there's not a hard date. I will say that's around when you start to worry and like the results start to compound because the reality of part of why week one, I don't take everything from it is because like, as Joe always mentions, 14 teams make the playoffs. So it's not live or die on the three points that happened. Joe, did you want to add something there? Oh, I was going to say 18, but I didn't want to derail your point. And nice. it, your point stands either way. So 
that's where it's not life or death like it is in another league where if you want to win the league, you have to win every game starting from week one that teams can sort of figure stuff out. And I think my point with this always is if you're a coach, you don't risk someone week one just because it's week one. Whereas fans, we put everything into week one because we're so excited and it's a big deal and everyone's watching and it's what we've been building towards for months. But as a club, it's those three points are equal to the three points the rest of the season. And there are very few clubs who come into the season and say, we will die if we don't win every single game that we play. And that's not the way MLS is built. So I think that's where some of that reaction comes from. And I think that's where last year, what, eight coaches got let go. There's pressure in MLS and there's pressure that builds pretty quickly. I think around week seven to 10 is where it starts to feel like these are the teams that are going to be in that category. These are the coaches or players that are in that category. And the other ones being, oh, this is a team that's having a fun season or has surprised. This is where we can start to say, okay, can they start to build on that and continue on for the rest of the year? But that doesn't mean that it always sets in stone for some teams of this is who they are at that point. Like it took Houston longer than that last year to really establish who they were. And then towards the second half of the year and through open cup, that's where they really figured it out. So we're going to have teams that are going to take some time uh, to, f- to figure out, to understand if they're good, to figure out themselves. Uh, but before we get to the actual results, Goss, I'll start with you. Who were the teams that you were most excited to watch this weekend, either because it seemed like they had added the components they needed to be a strong team from the jump or because the opposite was true and you thought they might be a train wreck? So Columbus is always on the top of the list now in MLS. That's who they are. I was let down by NYCFC. They've added a lot of pieces. I thought they were going, I think they are going to get back to where they've been over the last five years. Um, And that was not the case this weekend. So that was a pretty big letdown, but was one that I was tuning in for. And then Dallas was the other one. And I kind of knew with Dallas that some of the stars wouldn't be there and it wouldn't look exactly like it would, but I've been very high on them. And you at least saw some of the ideas from Nico Estevez even though the pure talent wasn't all available on the roster. Joe, is that about the same for you? The other team that I'll add into that equation, and there are a handful of others that belong in that conversation as well, for either good reasons or bad reasons. But the other one that I'll toss in there is Toronto FC, who I just have this sort of sick, morbid curiosity about. And John Herdman completely validated that over the weekend with his flesh-colored AirPod, which is as off-putting as it sounds and has always been. And the fact that he played Federico Bernadeschi as a right wing back. There was so much going on in that game against the reigning Supporter Shield winners, FC Cincinnati. And we'll, we'll get to it in more detail later on. But uh, Toronto were in that category as well. Were you surprised then that it finished nil-nil that game with Cincinnati, yeah. given the strength of Cincinnati and the relative weakness of Toronto? And there, there are caveats here. Cincinnati missing, in, in my mind, the player who will be the most impactful for them in 2024, Aaron Bupenza. He came off the bench dealing with a little hamstring injury. And I, I guess wasn't Pat Noonan wasn't willing to risk him from the start in this game. And I think... All things considered, that's probably the right call. So Cincy not at full strength. They've just lost Alvaro Barreal to Brazil, and, and they're playing Luca Oriano in that spot, and he's a very different player. Lots of ca- Matt Miazga, because he did Matt Miazga things in the playoffs last year, not in this game. So there are caveats, but even, even with all those things said, what we know of Toronto last year, and this team looks real similar to the team from last year, John Herdman is the biggest change. They have not done a roster overhaul. Like, yeah, I was real surprised that Toronto kept that game as close as they did for as long as they did, getting it to nil-nil in Cincinnati. So on Friday, I'd agree with you. But on Saturday, they had added three starters to this team, 
right? Like they started Richie Larea, they started Kevin Long, and they started Debbie Flores, which maybe outside of Richie, none of them are high level additions. But in my head, I felt the exact same way as you coming into this start of the season with Toronto, where I was yeah. like, this is weird. This yeah, is a we, train wreck of we a heard roster. Your yeah. They got a new coach, <laughs> and now they're the same team. And then as I started to go through it and, and put my lineup together, and then obviously what they came out in, it was a li- there is a little more addition than I expected. Yeah. yeah. And I think all of the additions fit into what we saw, which was like Kevin Long's probably not the most mobile center back. You're going to surround a guy in a back five. It's what he did with Steven Vittoria on the Canadian national team. Richie obviously fits cleanly into that. And then I think Flores is the big one of this team was so easy to play through over the last two years. A lot of that's on Michael Bradley and we can speak to that where, however we want the guy's a legend and deserves a ton of respect and should be in whatever hall of fames we have created, but he couldn't do it and he couldn't do it in that way. And Flores, I think added a ton to that, but I didn't feel any of that coming into this. Like it all kind of hit me at the same time as I was watching it. And then you add in the John Herdman effect, which I had two TFC fans who We've been mocking this whole thing for six months in a group chat. Text 10 minutes in and goes, Herdman, a good coach. Like, we still don't really know because he's only coached national teams. It's been a and and then what this game started with is actually what we've seen with his national teams, which is he will take a risk and he will throw teams off with flash and awe. We don't know how sustainable and deep sometimes his coaching ability is sure. to like build true systems. And we still don't know that after week one, which I think goes into the second half, it slowed down. They didn't have depth. He couldn't really change the game with subs, or he didn't. And we're going to figure a lot of that out as we go along. Yeah. Yeah, there's still plenty of questions for Toronto. But, man, a fantastic start to the season for them to go out against. Like, like this game featured the two teams at the biggest ends of the extremes from the table last year. Since he winning the, winning the Shield, Toronto winning the Spoon. For Toronto, on the road... Coming into Cincinnati to get a point is a fantastic result for them. It's one that I absolutely did not expect them to get. And guys, I think all of your all of your points there are, are spot on. There has been some turnover, and it came late in the window when it comes to Larea and, and Kevin Long, who you cannot convince me is not a defensive end in the NFL. You just can't do it. <laughs> Th- those two additions came late. It really was Flores who was kind of the star of this game. And yes, Lucho Acosta was on the field, and Aaron Bupenzo was on the field to finish this one for Cincinnati. Davey Flores was waived by the Vancouver Whitecaps in 2018, has then gone across and and had a little soccer journey of his own, now comes back. And and when this signing came across the internet, I was like, okay, this is a nothing burger. This is the only move Toronto have made in a meaningful incoming way, and it's not very meaningful. Uh, I'm completely wrong about that because at least based off of this game, he was fantastic. He was everywhere all at once, winning the ball on the double pivot in in what was a 3-4-2-1 in possession for John Herdman. I'm guessing, Goss, you kind of alluded to this. We're going to see 47 different looks from Toronto FC this season. We had inverted wingbacks in this game. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe, you know, Bernadeschi is going to vape his way out of playing at all, let alone playing on the, at a wingback spot. I don't know what this is going to look like, but Flores was really good. Toronto were competent when that first choice group was on the field together. And since you, for their part, were downright disappointing. Lucho Acosta was not very involved. He struggled to get free in midfield, and, and I think Toronto's shape had a lot to do with that. You could see without both of their best forwards from last year, Brendan Vasquez off to Monterey, Aaron Bupenza on the bench to start this game. Like this team just isn't dominant. Like I'm not sure they're capable of being dominant with the lineup that we saw on the field. And and the reality is this is a lot of their depth pieces. So we are holding out judgment on this team, but they look real different from where they looked last year between Barriel and Brendan Vasquez both being gone. And there are going to be some growing pains for this group as they move through 2024. 
All right, so we're withholding judgment, but my week one takeaway is that uh, FC Cincinnati and Toronto FC are equal, and Debbie Flores is better than Lucho Acosta. Correct. Perfect. Perfect. Um, for FC Cincinnati for a moment, we mentioned uh, Oriano starting at left wing back. Uh, we've had the departure of Ariel. Uh, we did not have Bupenza, and I do think that is a massive absence for them. He is so electric as a goal scorer and important as a goal scorer at the same time. Joe, were there other things you noticed from FC Cincinnati, either positive or negative? I think it's worth drilling down even briefly on Oriano at that left wing back spot. So left wing back spot, excuse me. We talked about in our previews and Taylor, you talked about Barrial and his importance. And then we had to follow up the next day and and you did it wisely (laughs) because Barrial's gone. He's gone now. And he was not just one of the best playmakers as an outside back in the league last year. He was a top 10 playmaker in terms of chances created and expected assists last year of every player in major league soccer. Number 10, there are so many good number 10s in this league. Barrial was better than a bunch of them. He was one of the absolute best playmakers in all of Major League Soccer, and he's gone now. And Oriano looks like a good young player, but he's a very different player. Much more vertical, much more direct, wants to take players on 1v1 in a way that Barrial didn't. Barrial would come inside and, and sort of function as like a, a pseudo-attacking midfielder in moments, and, and he wouldn't do that all the time next to Acosta. But he would give Cincy that different look. Oriana plays that that left wing back spot in a way that you would expect most players to, and that he is more vertical. It's not necessarily going to be worse. It's probably going to be worse. Barrio's basically irreplaceable. But it's not like changing from one style to another is inherently worse on its own. It just is going to take time for Cincy to get a better feel for what this attack looks like when they've lost their holdup man in Brandon Vasquez, and now they've lost their secondary creative force in Barrio. So one of the things that I think has been interesting so far, it's only been two games with Cincinnati, though, is Yuya Kubo started at wingback in CONCACAF because Ariano wasn't there yet, but then started again in this MLS game. And I think one of the things Cincinnati can be better at while losing Barrial is that with Miles Robinson as a more reliable center back, if Kubo plays as a right wing back and Oriano plays as a left wing back and Kubo can get into the attack and connect a little more, this team could be dangerous in a different way, which is like more possession and ability to maybe play Lucho Acosta into more dangerous areas through Kubo's feet. And Bupenza can go and connect in that spot or Kubo can come inside and maybe help you counter press quicker at times. There is ways for Cincinnati to maintain how good they were last year while still losing Barrial because it feels like they're going to change more than just one like for like. Because as Joe said, Barrial was so important last year. They were the only team in MLS that had two players in that top 10 chance creating category. They won Supporter Shield. Like it's not a coincidence. There's other stuff that goes into it. But to lose that and they're not going to be able to replace it like for like, it feels like there's more moves of Bupenza becomes a higher possession player. You get more chance creation out of that spot. Kubo can help you. Robinson takes a, helps you take a step both defensively and maybe allows you to commit more numbers into the attack. And it feels like Buka has been fairly reliable and clean in possession so far in his two games in central midfield as well. So it feels like there are three or four spots where they could take a half step forward to try and equal out what they've lost with Barrial. And we're, we're sure it's Buka, right? 100%? That's how we pronounce that name? I've got a pronunciation guide I can go into, but I have not yet. All right. All right. Because I'm sticking with Buxa until someone tells me otherwise, but I look forward to being wrong. Rosicki has always thrown me off. Tomas Rosicki has always made me uh, uncertain about my pronunciation of Czech players. Uh, but well done to FC Cincinnati for figuring out how to deal without uh, th- those players. And I'm, I think you all have set the stage really well for me to be excited 
to see how they evolve and see how they adapt and see how they replace those numbers if they can't replace the players directly. Uh, I look forward to that. I look forward to more Bernardeschi vaping as a right wing back. We'll see how that goes for Toronto. Take a quick break. Come back with much more MLS back soon. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show, uh, in which David Goss continues to seek out his pronunciation guide to prove me wrong in emphatic fashion. While he does that, Joe, can you talk a little bit about Columbus? I'm assuming most of your notes are just Wolford Nance with hearts around them. Yeah, basically. Cool. Like the third line of my notes under Columbus in this uh-huh. game, one no win over Atlanta United on Saturday. It was the first game of the full weekend slate is just, quote, this team is so stupid good, unquote. Like they they really looked like they did not miss a beat, and it's not like they're coming out against one of the one of the bottom feeders in the Eastern Conference. Atlanta United have the makings of a very good team. They made I thought smart additions in the offseason. They have one of the league's absolute best players in Thiago Almada. There's a lot to like about this Atlanta team, especially when you give them the chance to go out and hit on the break with Yakamaki slice, slicing in behind the opposing back line. But Atlanta had no joy, especially in the first half. They had a few more looks in the second half, but. The game felt pretty over by halftime of this match. Columbus had a very similar look to what we saw last year. The, the big difference for them was that we saw Jason Russell Rowe in that front line instead of Matan or, or Christian Ramirez. And, and Ramirez, I, I don't think, is a regular starter for this team. So it really was over Matan. And that gave them a slightly different look. Russell Rowe's you know, a, a little bit smoother on the ball, I think, adds another layer, another dimension, sort of charging forward in possession. 
and is, I think, just a better soccer player in a lot of ways than Matan, even though they are very different. That was an exciting tweak from Nancy. But this team looks like they picked up every bit of what they had last year, carried it into this season, and are trying to add some more things along the way. The crew are the best team in Major League Soccer right now, and I feel confident about saying that, not just because of where they were last year, but because this is one of the teams. They had basically everybody. Atlanta United had basically everybody. You know, It's not like we're waiting on a bunch more dominoes to fall for either one of these teams out east. Like, no, this is who the crew are. This is who Atlanta United are. Both, are, both teams are going to grow and they'll look a little different as the year goes on, but this was a legit three points to kick off the season from the best team in MLS. All right, so Goss, uh, I think Joe's on record. Supporter Shield and MLS Cup, should we just give it to them now? I'll just say it, it, it would not surprise me. We shouldn't just say it now unless, you know, if that was your prediction coming no, in, great. If not, we're doing, we're doing, like, we're doing ridiculous over the top week one reactions. And this is okay. One well, then that's not even ridiculous enough, Taylor, to be Fair honest. Enough. Like that feels okay. too I think, plausible. I think like, Joe what, had the They're going to win every Timbers. trophy. I think Joe had the Portland Timbers winning the double and Correct. Evander not playing a single minute, right? <laughs> now we're talking. That's <laughs> the kind of over-the-top take we're looking for. I think that's what Joe is predicting. But everything Joe said is right. This was a team that peaked at the end of last year, returned everyone. And I talked about this already a little bit this week. But like to me, the fact that Jason Russell Rowe got the start in this game shows you that Columbus, while making really only one genuine addition to their first team can get better from last year from both a stylistic point of view and a personnel point of view because Wilfred Nance is committed to developing players through the team. Like Mo Farsi was not a starter on this team last year. He lost the spot to Julian Gressel and then started an MLS Cup and has been a difference maker in some big games. Multi Odmanson was brought in mid-year as just a fill-in at fullback because of Will Sand's injury and ends up hitting the pass to win MLS Cup. Like this is a club that, pushes guys internally and so there's a real feeling for me that Columbus midway or at the end of this year could have new pieces in their starting lineup that make them better without going out and finding them because it could be Max Arvston it could be Jason Russell Rowe it could be Taha Brun whatever it is they've worked out a pipeline and Wilfred Nance is committed to letting those players play and giving them opportunities so I think that's a little exciting nugget to take out of this for Columbus fans, besides the fact that they hit the ground running from a team that won MLS Cup and was dominant in MLS Cup. And then Joe, thoughts on Atlanta, a team that I thought I, in my preview would be strong this season. Obviously, it's week one, but they do have several of their key players. They've got the strong attack. They're not able to do much in this game. I think XG was certainly under one. I think it was like 0. 0.5 or something like that. So were you... I don't know, let down at all by Atlanta, or was this more Columbus just being who we thought they were? A, a little bit of both, right? Columbus absolutely hurt, were who we thought they were. Another American football reference. Let's go. We're, we're up to two on today's yeah, show. There. But like a- Atlanta still have room to continue to grow and, and feel themselves out. This is basically the hardest game you could have to kick off your season. So I, I'm mean, not thinking I, Atlanta. We mean United. second to RSL at home, right? Right. Having yes, RSL at home is Into the Miami's home game against RSL. Well, they definitely weren't offered up as you. a sacrificial lamb in any way. Uh, <laughs> but th- this is a really hard game for Atlanta. They didn't play well <laughs> at all. And I have still major questions about Gonzalo Pineda as a manager. I don't think he's ever turned this Atlanta United team into more than the sum of their parts. But those questions aren't necessarily greater after this game, this loss to Columbus, than they were before. Any concerns about, about Brad Guzan starting in goal, Joe? I know he's a player that you have... Uh, a lot of love and respect for and appreciation for what he still brings to this team. After this game, no, because he was he was good in this game. Saved a penalty kick in the first half. In general, I, I thought he was sharp and couldn't have done a whole lot more in this match. 
I was still surprised, I'll admit, to see Guzan start in, in this game for Pineda over Josh Cohen, who was signed in the offseason. But that is the position to monitor from Atlanta moving forward. Center back, there's some questions there. But who starts in goal from game to game is a huge question. And at this point, I would expect it to be Brad Guzan again next week. This isn't a game where you normally see Guzan's issues because a lot of his issues are coming off his line, covering space, allowing Atlanta to play higher and playing in possession now. He, ha- he has made mistakes in, in shot stopping. So like, yeah, it could have shown, but this is not really the game where it's like, oh, Brad Guzan shouldn't be the guy anymore. But also if you're moving on, move on. Like you've pursued Josh Cohen for a year and a half. You had him in preseason. If he's the guy, he's the guy. If he's not, then you just wasted another signing. And sometimes those are those moments where it's like, maybe you make the right decision today for the future and not for today. Uh, I took a guess. 28 of 29 MLS teams play every weekend at this point. Uh, one team, because there's an odd number, is on a bye, and that team is Atlanta United. So we won't learn about Brad Guzan versus Josh Cohen next week. My bet was wrong, even though the odds were real good. They take on New England on March 9th. This is why Joe doesn't bet. <laughs> yeah, that, in, a, exactly in a can't-lose situation, he lost. <laughs> Still lose. Um, Goss, a question for you, uh, since we had an actual goal in this game. You mentioned this on Extra Time. You have a policy of when a goal is scored, you turn off the game. Can you explain? No, I always turn off a game right before the goal gets scored. There when we go. Okay, simultaneously. Okay. I thought it was some weird, like, the goal happens and then you nope. immediately change the channel because the goal has happened and yeah. there will be no No, I hate drama. fun. I, I really hate go- Like, that's the worst part of soccer is when they <laughs> score. Okay. All right. Uh, now, But I, it is now amazing my ability to, like, bat 1,000 on that. All right, so if the U.S. is playing, we need you to turn off the game. Yeah, for sure. Just have me throw on the Costa Rica game. (laughs) Um, Goss, as long as we're talking about your general disappointment, should we talk NYCFCs for a moment or whatever we're supposed to call them now? New York football club of the stars in New York and not New Jersey or anywhere else but New York. an exaggeration based (laughs) off what we saw. I thought they were going to take a step forward. I'm pretty excited about Hans Wolf as an acquisition because I think he brings something different. He's direct. He yep. drives. He came through pressing systems, not as much connecting. And I, I think for NYCFC, it's good to have a change of pace. I also thought that would create openings for Santi Rodriguez to take advantage. Santi Rodriguez got in better positions than he did last year. He was in comfortable spots either to set players up or score himself. He was ineffective. So I didn't think Bakrar got a ton of opportunities. And honestly, I, I cannot tell you what's going on with Talis Magna. Like, I understand he struggled at times last year because the team was bad and he was played out of position. Now you've got center forwards. The fact that he comes off the bench in like the 82nd minute of this game makes no sense to me. So a lot of that was a little bit confusing. Um, They had to make the change at right back early as well, which is a little worrying. So in ways, I mean, they were fine. Like they gave up a set piece goal early in front of 60,000 fans and, and couldn't come back that in abstract is okay. It just, it didn't feel like they took a step forward from what I saw. And this is one of those teams where, okay, seven to eight weeks in, if that's the case after last year, there becomes pressure and there becomes pressure on a team that's really young. I don't trust this group to deal with that well, because there's not a lot of senior leadership to manage the young players through that. Like the senior leaders of this team are, are Keaton Parks. And that's not a ton of experience to lean on or a commanding voice to say, like, let's everyone just ignore the outside voices. Let's just stick to our job. And I worry about this. Club. 
How do you gauge who is becoming a senior leader in the team? That's the the thing that I always find so tricky about I, early season results is like you can track a player's performance, a unit's performance, the overall team performance. I, feel, I find it hard to look at those basically intangibles or to find those little areas that you can then monitor as the weeks go on. I normally, if I cut the tree in half, I, I count the rings gotcha. on the inside and that's how I figure it out. Um, I don't know. A lot of this is that vibes, like mm-hmm. body language counting, right? Who do all the players go and celebrate with? Who sort of leads the pre and halftime huddles? Who's the one that's communicating the most with the sideline as well as with players? I think when you watch a lot of teams, you can see it. Sometimes those are emotional lift players and not leaders. Like this is just a shot in the dark. I'm not saying this specific, but like Griffin Dorsey is an emotional lift player, right? It feels like when he's on and he's going forward and he's yelling and he's cheering with the fans that the team lifts with it. I don't know that that means that they go into the locker room and Ache Ache and Amin Bossy sit down and look to Griffin Dorsey for a halftime speech. But there are there's different ways uh, that you can I can't answer. That. They do not. Yeah. I can tell you that categorically they do not. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. So I think those are the things, but it's just, it's tough to think that like Sandy Rodriguez is the one who's coming into training on a Wednesday after, you know, a big piece comes out and fans are upset and, and sits players down and is like, this is going to be okay. This is how we're going to deal with this. Like, we're just going to focus on our job. And there's not a lot of names in that team that you look to and say like, oh, this is the guy that would do that. Joe, I was not on the show yesterday, the weekend review, but I'm going to assume that in some way Ryan claimed credit for this victory, not just because Charlotte wins and he's affiliated, but because he was playing guitar uh, d- during the game. Is that is that where we should give credit for this performance? I think it all comes down to Ryan Bailey playing Green Day in front of 62,000 people. The crowd was awesome in Charlotte, and it was really cool to hear about Ryan's experience really playing. We talked about that in depth on the Patreon, so, so folks, go check that out on TSS+. Plus. So, tons of fun and, and good work in general from Charlotte. This is the first look that we had of a Dean Smith coached Charlotte FC team in a meaningful competition. And they were the better team by a country mile in this game at home against NYCFC. They played in a 4-2-3-1. They scored a goal on a set piece, defending set pieces, by the way, has been and continues to be a big problem for NYCFC is, is probably the biggest thing they could do overnight to get them out of these really bad holes that they seem to find themselves in early in games. But Charlotte were the better team. And this is an incomplete Charlotte FC team. They have two DP slots open. You know, there are a lot of dominoes left to fall for them as a club. But I thought they were they were fine to good in this game. And getting a little boost from the home crowd, they were great at stretches then as a result. You know, a really strong three points from them to start off the year. Uh, Goss, any thoughts on Charlotte or Ryan Bailey's guitar performance? I think it helped this week to the opposite of NYCFC to have like a junior or so who's an adult who has played in MLS, but they were very blunt offensively, especially once they were ahead late in the game when NYCFC threw pieces forward. And that's the worry with this team is like they need DP talent in the creative spots, whether it's a 10, a winger or both to help them out because Capetti doesn't create chances for himself and there was no one underneath him that was going to do it either in this game so they looked sturdier they looked more solid I said on extra time like if they play at their level they're probably a playoff competitive team there's probably higher expectations though because they just signed a former Premier League manager and they play in front of 62,000 fans and they've spent at times like they understand that they've just done it poorly so if they can do it a little better this year I think it's reason to believe for Charlotte fans that this should be a fun year a Dean Smith team looking sturdy and solid who'd have thunk 
Who'd have thunk? We spent a lot of time on the East, or uh, time on the East, excuse me. Let's go to the West briefly, and then we'll take another break. Joe, uh, thoughts on LAFC starting off with a strong performance against the Seattle team that I thought would hit the ground running, but in this case, it was LA doing the running. I think on this game, Taylor, we have to start with the Seattle Sounders, even though you led me in with LAFC. They were missing a ton of starters in this game. No Stefan Fry, no Yaimar in the back line, no Jao Paulo, no Abit Rusnak. Like Pedro de la Vega came off the bench in the second half and looked, man, the, my biggest de la Vega takeaway, he looked like a big dude. He didn't jump off the screen at me as like a, a big, beefy guy. And I don't really think he is that, but he's a little taller and, and broader than I thought he was going to be and plays legitimately like the Tasmanian Devil, Looney Tunes style. Like he was shot out of a cannon coming off the bench, takes a penalty kick to, to get something on the board for Seattle in this game. LAFC, though, I thought the the big takeaway for them is that the new players looked sharp. You had Omar Campos at left back, the Diego Palacios replacement, gets the assist on the Tim Tillman goal and was good in this game. You had Atuesta, who's not entirely new, but is new to the number eight spot. He looks good in like an upgrade in that midfield area. Hugo Lloris got everything done in this game, had a couple of wayward passes, actually, in terms of, of his distribution. I don't think that's going to be a huge issue going forward for this team. So the, the big encouragement for LAFC is you looked this good, Without two DP spots, assuming you're going to fill those in the summer, it seems like that's what's going to happen at this point. And you were you were the better team against the Seattle Sounders, who were missing on the whole. If you think that that LAFC are going to fill their two DP spots, probably the same amount of talent that you were missing. That is a good sign for LAFC, who took care of business in a game that they should win, given the two lineups on Saturday. Joe, forgive me. What what was it about LA that you felt made them look comprehensively better? Because I think on the stat side. I think there's an argument that Seattle could have gotten more out of this game, but didn't. So what was it for you that made LAFC that much better? The big thing for LAFC to like in this game was that the new guys looked good. Like, that is that is the takeaway okay. from LAFC, a team that is in transition. They're missing five starters from MLS Cup last year. It was a big offseason for them, and they didn't fill those positions with superstars just yet. And the fact that you get Omar Campos, 21-year-old left back coming from Liga Mekis, you get Atuesta, who didn't play at Palmeiras, back into the lineup. You get Mateus Bogus moving from an 8 to a, to a 9 position and scoring a banger. Like, there were just a lot of things to like for LAFC. They're still not a comprehensively dominant team as they're constructed right now because Steve Torondolo doesn't want to play that way. But they were by far the better team in the first half. And Seattle got back into the game a bit in the second half, but their XG is super inflated by a penalty kick. So on the whole, I don't think LAFC were the best team that took the field this weekend. That absolutely was Columbus. But were they one of the better teams against the Sounders? Yeah, I think they were the one of the better teams in week one. Very nice. Goss, thoughts either way on LA or Seattle? Uh, I think I agree with Joe. Like I'd say for LAFC, they felt very similar to the end of last year. And they don't have Carlos Vela anymore. They lost Kellen Acosta. They lost Chiellini and Palacio. So like to me, that's a big win is just having maintained level while getting younger and I think a little bit cheaper. I don't have pure confidence that they're going to fill those spots like they didn't last year. So I don't know where they're at of like what the needs are, what the club wants to accomplish and how they want to get there. Um, They'll be competitive. They'll be towards the top of the West no matter what, because what we saw on Saturday was that they are close to where they were last year, which was the case. Nice. All right, gentlemen, we're going to take one more break. We'll be back with some quick hits, a few more games to be discussed back soon. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We continue to break down MLS week one. We assume you never left. If you did, well, then you're not listening anymore, so I'm not talking to you. Joe, let's talk Portland. Uh, Let's stay on the West Coast. Uh, The Timbers with a 4-1 to win over the Colorado Rapids. Sam Vines chipping in a goal for Portland. That was very charitable of him. Eric Williamson doing 
the opening goal scoring that has to make you excited joe i feel like you are an eric williamson lover through and through I really am. He's so good, man. We haven't seen him play soccer for the Timbers since April of last year. He's had two major knee injuries in the last like two and a half years. It was great to see him back on the field, and, and he was awesome in this game. He was drafted into the number 10 spot because Evander was out dealing with a little injury and crashed the box really well. That's how the, the Timbers get on the board in the ninth minute is, is from a Williamson crash and, and, and score towards the far side of the box. You had Mascara and, and, uh, and Santi Moreno combining well on the right side. Anthony was ruthlessly efficient with his shooting on the left wing, the only Anthony scoring goals right now in, in world soccer. Like there were, there were a lot of things to Thanks, like for Jeff. the Timbers who created, you're welcome, who created the kind of chances that you want a team to create against a pressing team that the Rapids want to be. I don't think the Timbers are going to come out here and score four goals every game. Actually, you know what, fellas? I'll lay, I'll lay it all on the line. They're not going to do that going forward. We uh, know how uh, betting goes for Joe. So congratulations, Portland pretty Timbers good, right? fans. But make sure to get to your seats early so you don't miss the opening goal. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to do any of that stuff. But the Rapids, I, I thought, were the big story of this game. They were terrible. And, and not because they were leaking chances at the back over and over and over again. The Timbers, like way outperformed their XG in this game, but they weren't really winning the ball back in the press. They did have a couple of chances for, for Navahu up, up, up top, which is a good sign for them in the attack, but like they, they didn't create much on their own in general in this game, and they were really leaky. Like The number of times that the Timbers just knifed right through them in transition was way too high in this match. So, uh, man, not a great start in terms of the identity for this Rapids teams, but credit for, for the Timbers, who looked exactly like they thought they would, who like we thought they would, excuse me, under Phil Neville, playing 4-2-3-1, in transition, all that stuff, and they got the job done. Joe, what I'm hearing is an admission that you were wrong about Zach Steffen being the player that would turn the Colorado Rapids around and how he was going to be the face of their franchise. I was coerced into saying it to begin with, and I'm actually not wrong. I was right all along. Uh, I love Comedy Bang Bang, the improv podcast, and I love whenever Paul F. Tompkins is forced uh, to yes and when anything he does not want to. He does a very deliberate yes and, and I feel like that's what Joe Lowry just gave me, uh, Goss, when it comes to Zach Steffen. Joe then dropped out to hear my joke about Joe Lowry. So instead, Goss, I'll just ask you uh, if you are as concerned as Joe was about the Rapids. I just like when he does Gary Marshall. That's the only part that I do. <laughs> Gary Marshall! Yeah. <laughs> um, Please call me Gary. I, yeah, I don't know where I'm at on the Rapids. Again, on the, like, don't overdo week one, not everyone was available. And Joe mentioned the chances they created in the first half. Like, I think from a stylistic point of view, there was some positives. The individual errors and just, like, losing your moments is so alarming. Because normally, at a minimum, it's like, oh, new coach. Like, I got to be turned on. And to have, like, Keegan Rosenberry, of all people, just... Get dominated. I think I don't think Zach Steffen was at fault on the goals, but I think he potentially could have saved and been better on two of them. Uh, and then you look all the way through the team about guys stepping late, closing down space late, not being connected, coming out of a full preseason together. There's just a lot of worry and like it could have been a flash in the pan. They gave up an early goal on the road. They don't know each other. Then you get the own goal to close out the half, which was a moment of madness and the game's over before you can really get your feet set. But the other side of it is like, there's all these things you expect to happen early on in a coaching tenure. And none of them happened in this game. So if it happens again in week two, I think this is one of those where you start to get worried kind of early. Um, and it'll be interesting because you don't have much to fall back on of like, Oh, well we know we're better than this or 
this is a core of a team that's been in playoffs before. And so we'll just lean on that. Like that's what the Portland Timbers have done for eight years, which is every time they start a year, they try and play a new style of soccer. They do it poorly. And eventually they go back to, well, we know if we put four or five in the back and we play Valentin and Luis Mabiala and Diego Chara, we can hold out results and we can grind it out and we can be better. The Rapids don't have anything like that. So it's worrying to think that, if it falls apart and there's not a ton of confidence in the system and there's not a ton of belief in the players, what is left there for this team? So optimistic signs for the Rapids under Chris gotcha. Armas uh, and more so for for Portland under famed and esteemed manager Phil Neville. Uh, Joe, when we talk about teams that sort of do a thing consistently and then uh, back certain players to rise to the occasion and develop throughout the season – like we talk about the Philadelphia Union, who did more or less just that this weekend. Yeah, they had a couple of youngsters in their lineup and and had some really nice moments in the final third. You had Quinn Sullivan and Jack McGlynn playing as the two number eights in this team. McGlynn had probably the pass of the week. I think but it was towards the end of the first half playing Nathan Harrell into the box. Just so good at picking out those balls, those progressive through balls. So much to like about McGlynn and, and still a lot of room for him to improve as well. But uh, Quinn Sullivan, I think, is is maybe one of the most fascinating parts about the union in this game. He's shifted back from being a second forward, at times being an attacking midfielder. Now Jim Curtin's giving him run as a number eight. And that's a natural progression for a player who just doesn't seem to quite have the skill in the final third to be a difference maker. It, that's not just a Quinn Sullivan thing. We see that all over the world. As players age and lose their burst or lose a little bit on the ball, they drop back a line. Juan Cotrado did that from, from the wing to wing back. It happens all over the world all the time. And it happens for younger players a lot. There's a reason why kids who are really good in, in their academy before they maybe move to a bigger youth academy shift from being a striker or number 10 to being a fullback. And, and Quinn Sullivan is enjoying that progression right now. And I think it's working well for him. This is, I believe, the second time we've gotten to see him in that role so far in this season between CCC and now MLS play. So it's something to watch for the Union going forward. The 2-2 draw at home is is fine for them. They needed a late goal to, to win. They're dealing with, with CCC stuff right now. So I, I don't think it's like a, a huge black mark to, to drop points to Chicago. But, you know, an interesting tactical tweak from Curtin to watch going forward. Goss, you seem to have had a... Not quite fascination, but a strange curiosity with the Chicago Fire this season. Uh, whether or not that is accurate, how much of this game were you paying attention to from a Chicago perspective? A decent amount. They had most of the pieces that they've you added out there. You love them. Um, Andrew Gutman went down with a non-contact injury three minutes into the game. That's a huge break. That's that's heartbreaking for them. He, I think, was going to be a big part of what they were trying to do, and especially down that left wing his chance creation, his ability to shift, you know, the pressure of the field. That was really big. Um, and then Kellen Acosta not starting, obviously, takes something away. Is I think he's going to work his way into it, but got on the field at the end of the game. But the big one was Hugo Kuypers and didn't score, didn't create a chance. But when you watch a big center forward, I think the first thing you're looking for is like, how fluid is your movement? Is he lumbering or can he cover ground? Is he fluid in possession? Can he bring the ball down? Can he hold the ball? I saw all of those things. So I think that's a promising first step where for Chicago, you went and played at one of the hardest teams to play at in the league. They have one of the best home records at MLS over the last five years, let alone the last two. And they play a very unique, somewhat outlier style. So everything about this game was different. And I thought Chicago handled a lot of that pretty well. And I thought Kuypers handled a decent amount of it pretty well. And then I think... It's not pure, but like on the first goal, I think Kuypers helps create some more space 
for Gutierrez to charge into that didn't exist last year because he didn't have a center forward that you were really going to track and worry about. So I think there's some promise in there for Chicago fans. I'm always going to watch Gutierrez. Like anytime he's on the field, he's must watch. Scott looked good again as well. So there's some promise in there for this Chicago team. Promise being, I think, making a playoff run, not being a top four team in the East. Speaking of top four teams in the East, we've already said that the crew are going to win the Supporter Shield and MLS Cup. Joe, my question for you is, how are they going to do that if DC United also do that? DC United with a 3-1 win over the Revs. Uh, I think we can all agree, best team DC, in the East. DC, Portland Timbers, MLS Cup. I'll see you guys there. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's going to be unattended game. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Joe, over to you. No, I mean, I think the attendance would be, would be great between yeah. Providence Park and the Audi Field atmosphere looked like it was banging over the weekend as well. Uh, a, a really good win from DC United, a team that I still don't have very high expectations for. This game was heavily, heavily swayed by the double yellows to Veroni early on in this match. He gets sent off in the 25th minute. The first one is for like interrupting a, a dead ball, and then the second one he slides in needlessly, and bang, bang, boom, he's off the field. At that point, the game shifts heavily into DC United's favor. And Benteke gets his hat trick. You know, he, he doesn't score. And even the Revs have the best chance of the game before that that uh, that double yellow to Veroni. So, you know, some caveats here for DC. But things I did like about this group, Benteke still has the makings of an elite number nine in this league. Doesn't look like that changed over the offseason. That's a good sign. I liked uh, Troy Lissane, who was not on the sidelines for this game, by the way. A suspension from last season. It was Zach Prince on the sideline, one of his assistants. But I liked the idea of using Ted Cudipietro as a 10 or second forward and shifting Pirani out to the wing. I think that's a good sign for this group. And they were aggressive in how they pressed. They won the ball a lot on, on both sides. The right side in particular of Herrera and Jared Stroud are, that's like a gritty death side to play through. DC were, were really sharp in how they pressed. So lots of good signs for this team. But I'm taking my David Goss, like I'm, I'm just fully copping out here and saying we need to see them play a few more games before we get a real idea of their level. Well, don't rely on me too much because my VSP was that Benteke would double his assists and he had a freaking hat trick in the opening game with no assists. <laughs> I could not have picked that. I could have just said Benteke will have 20 goals, 25 goals. I could have just done something simple, but I was like, no, I'm going to be so smart. They're going to play off him. They're going to play through him. And they will. And they did. The goals just ended up with him as well. But um, Benteke, right when you get in front of goal, pull it back and find Jared Stroud, and he will he will bury that for you. Uh, for New England in this game, I, it's a little overly simplistic, but I don't think it's unfair to say that their fate rests in Henrik Ravas's gloves this season. New goalkeeper, like this has been the Revs thing for a while with it relatively similar roster construction. If the goalkeeper is real good, this team has a shot in every game, and they've had real good goalkeepers over the last couple of seasons. But Ravas was not that in this game, and the third goal is probably the best example of that. It's a cross, not the greatest cross ever, coming in from the right side. And Ravas goes up to it, and Benteke just beats it to him. And only one of those players, fellas, gets to use his hands, and that's Ravas in goal for the New England Revolution. Not a good start from him. To encourage Revs fans, though, in an otherwise disappointing game, I thought Thomas Chankalai, a player that I have been skeptical of in public with that skepticism, was sharp. His ability to create Welcome. chances. Yeah, it's it's nice. I'm not all the way over, but I'm I'm cautiously scoping out what it's like I, on your side. David. I got there day one and I saved you a seat. So That's whenever so nice you get you. here, you've got a place to sit. 
Thank you. And I'm sure that I'll be met with no um, no sly comments or anything of, of that sort. Uh, but Chunkalai, I, I liked how he created space for himself and he had the best chance of the of, of the early stages of this match inside DC's box. I'm not, like I said, I'm not all the way there, but a good sign for him. And he could help, you know, dig them out of the crater that they're going to end up in if Rabas doesn't turn out to be a half-decent goalkeeper. Uh we shall see what happens there. I would be slightly more concerned uh, if I were a refs fan, just because uh, having previewed them, this feels like more or less their ideal starting 11. Maybe there's some changes once you get people back from, from injury, uh, but for them to maybe not look as up to speed. And then the Verioni red card is not ideal to start the season, but for Christian Benteke, he's wearing a hat trick. Goss, uh, my final question for DC United, uh, you referred to Kuipers as not lumbering. Where is Benteke in the lumbering scale? Oh, Benteke's smooth. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I love Christian zero Benteke. If it's one to ten, ten being most lumbering. I'm trying to ask you the most weeby question I can. Yeah. Sort of you. to annoy you. I appreciate that. Uh-huh. You should have re-explained it five times before I answered. All right. So the point that I'm trying to get at here is I'm wondering <laughs> what you think. Uh, and I also want to elongate this because uh, Goss is progressively sweating more and more as the episode oh goes God. on. It's apparently 140 degrees where he's it recording. It's so hot in the room I'm recording. Thank- Winter's in New York. There's nothing hotter, baby. Joe smiles at your 140 degrees inside because it's uh, that inside and outside. Um, let's talk Red Bulls and then we'll close out with the Galaxy. Uh, how are we feeling about uh, Emil Forsberg, the impact player that Goss said could potentially be an impact player? Goss, is he exactly what you thought he would be? I still feel good. This All is right. a Red Bull team that hit the post three times against one of the best defensive teams in the league at is home. That good? I understand. Is that a good thing? <laughs> no, obviously not, but it's closer uh. than they were last year <laughs> in the same setting. So they're getting into dangerous spots, and you saw Forsberg from the free kick, and things like yeah. that start to affect teams of like, oh, you don't want to go in for fouls around the box. You don't want to put it out for corners because Forsberg becomes a threat from set pieces. You've got great targets in the box for him in terms of the roster, especially the two center backs with this team. I like the idea of the three center mids for New York because I think Amaya and Edelman can pass a little bit, Stroud as well. And so I think that's a decent setup to be stout defensively, still be able to dominate the center of the park and still be able to press and create chances because I think Forsberg's high level. And they were missing John Tolkien, who for a fullback had four goals and eight assists last year, which is off the chart numbers and changes the shape of the field for them from the left back spot. It also brings Duncan back to the right back who I also think affects the game a little bit more. They got Lewis Morgan on the field at the end as well. So I understand Red Bull fans who are like positive coming out of that. They went on the road, they played aggressive. They had the better chances and against one of the best defensive teams in the league, they put up an op- opportunities without giving up anything at all throughout the game it's only week one. So the hope is that Forsberg settles in and gets more comfortable as it goes along. And Lewis Morgan can give you more minutes as it goes along. Well, is this a team that went from where they were last year to back into a supporter shield convo like they were under Jesse Marsh? No, that's not going to be the case with the group they have right now. But I think every single one of their offseason's additions has made them better than they were last year. Uh, speaking of, of, I guess, 
after season additions uh, since we are uh, post week one. I totally predicted that Minnesota United would immediately hire a coach. Didn't have them waiting until May or June at all. Uh, they have done just that. They brought in Eric Ramsey. I think this was mentioned uh, when I did that preview. Uh, he has come over from Manchester United. He was an assistant under Eric Ten Hag, and he is either 31, 32, or 33. I'm not sure if we ever found consensus on that one because uh, none of they, us are good at math or They counting. do ages different in Minnesota because it's so far north. The sun moves differently, so days go. are different. Logic. That makes sense. But they do start off with a 2-1 to win on the road at Austin. I'm not sure if that is more a credit to Minnesota or a concerning thing for Austin supporters. Uh, yes, and yes. yes and yes. All right. Then let's move it swiftly to uh, the Galaxy and Inter-Miami. One of the, the marquee games we identified in the Patreon on Friday. Uh, Joe, did it live up to the billing for you? Can I do 30 seconds on Ramsey first, Taylor? Please, may I? Me, I think that is telling us to how you feel about the Galaxy, but sure, go ahead. No, I, no, I, no, 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 I'm i stoked go, go, to go, talk go. about that Sunday night game. I think the Ramsey hire is a fascinating one, and I think it deserves just a, a little bit of spotlight. He'll be the youngest coach in Major League Soccer by, I believe, seven years. And and yes, he is 32. I think we we, we do have that confirmed at this point, um, even though our math skills maybe are not the strongest as a collective. Um, he has made his career so far as kind of a set-piece coach and a personal development coach. He's led some tactical sessions for Manchester United as well. This is not a traditional hire from Minnesota United. They have not gone after a big name. They've not gone after somebody who's who's done this job very much before. In fact, it's going to be a test sort of, of, of whether you can go out there and snag managers from untraditional background and, uh, backgrounds and have them be really impactful. And we have a, a pretty good example of that in Wilfred Nance, who didn't have a traditional background to becoming CF Montreal's manager, and now is the best coach, bar none, in Major League Soccer. So I am optimistic, cautiously optimistic about this hire, because Minnesota's squad is, is pretty good as it stands now. It's not great, but I think it is good. There's a lot of workable pieces in there, and I'm kind of into the idea of going out and, and looking under different rocks for coaches these days, because it feels like we've recycled through a lot of the same candidates at this point as a soccer society. Moving us forward, though, to the Galaxy against Inter-Miami. This game was fun, guys. Miami were bad, real bad, for the first 80 minutes or so of this match. The Galaxy were all over them, and, and in some ways, when Miami aren't sharp in possession, they're a good matchup for everyone, and they were a good matchup for the Galaxy. Our first look at Joseph Pansil on, on one side. We saw Gabriel Peck come off the bench in the second half, and both those players were on the field together playing as inverted wingers. The Galaxy were super fun. Their, their deficiencies weren't really tested in that defensively there are real concerns about them. And Miami just straight up weren't sharp enough on the ball to really cause a ton of problems outside of that nice messy Alba goal in the second half. But a promising start in my mind for the Galaxy against an imperfect but still high ceiling into Miami team. This was, despite only there being two goals in this match, one of the most entertaining games of the weekend. Which of the marquee Inter-Miami players, Joe, do you find most or more concerning? And why is it either Luis Suarez or Sergio Busquets? So I'm, I'm still not concerned at all okay. about Luis Suarez. I think he's such an obvious upgrade over Joseph Martinez. Goss, you said it. I don't remember if we were recording or if it was on a pre-show. And it really crystallized it for me. Like, subbing out Joseph Martinez, old, bad knees, doesn't score goals... For Luis Suarez, old bad knees, does score goals and does create chances, is just such a huge win for this Miami team. And I think on the whole, he and Ian Messi have been the two best of the, the four Barcelona boys so far. Busquets just hasn't been sharp. And, and the, outside of Busquets, it feels like everybody around Busquets and, and Messi, to a probably a greater extent, are still trying to figure out how to play with him. And I honestly thought between the preseason and, and last season, 
that those issues wouldn't be there, at least to the extent that they are right now. But Taylor, you called him out, I think, sometime last week. Julian Gressel has not been good in possession for this team. Diego Gomez has had flashes, but he's not been good, and he's had time with these guys before. Yedlin, Robert Taylor, all the pieces, all the ancillary guys just don't look comfortable at all yet, and that, in turn, is making Busquets' life more difficult. I think that probably plays a part as to why he's not been as sharp as we expect him to be. But I'm, I'm not really worried about any of that stuff. I don't know that it's going to fix itself by next week or the week after, but come cut competitions later this year, I, I still feel good about this group finding themselves. I- I think Federico Redondo, who they've officially signed now, is going to be big for them. Um, Because I hear you on the Busquets stuff, his lack of sharpness, his lack of bringing what he brings at a great level to the field, which covers up some of his deficiencies. But like the, the thing I walk away from with this team so far is the lack of balance. And a lot of that falls on Busquets of like, he can't cover ground. And so if you commit numbers forward... You have to commit all your numbers and dominate the ball and counter press it high because if the game opens up at all, you're toast. And RSL wasn't willing and didn't have the pieces to take advantage of it. Galaxy did and they didn't, but you saw all of those issues of like, if if Miami pushes numbers forward and you float the ball over the top to a player like Painstill, they're going to cook Jordi Alba and Sergi Kristoff if Busquets ever even gets there to help. And there, those are the deficiencies in this team. I think Redondo could fix a lot of them because of the way way he plays. And you add depth. Like, this is a really thin team. You look at this group going on the field on Sunday, and it's like, Leo Campana can come off the bench and change the game for you. That's it. Maybe Jean Mota. Otherwise, it's David Ruiz and... Noah Allens. There's just not a ton of depth and options in this team. So I think Redondo is going to be big. I'm going to wait a little bit to see him, to see how he affects this team. For Miami, you could say you're not worried, but if you thought this team was going to set a points record or win Supporter Shield, then I think you have to start getting worried because there's only so many games they can play in. And if we're looking at schedules and we're all being honest, like Messi's going to miss five or six for Copa America, right? He's going to miss whatever else because he can only play so many games at this age. So I think that's where if you're into Miami, like it's not about making the playoffs or being a cup contender that you worry about. It's other trophies and situation. I want to I want to stick with Busquets for a second because you all have watched the uh, Miami more closely than I have now. W- what is it specifically that you all aren't seeing from him or would like to see from him? I know, Goss, you mentioned some of his his speed and and his defensive cover. I feel like that's always kind of been a part of it or a, a, a negative part of his game, but like. His passing stats all seem pretty standard for me. They all seem pretty highly rated. Long balls are pretty effective. It, it, he has yet to be dispossessed, I think. And yet I keep hearing him like, Busquets has been terrible. Busquets has been bad. Busquets looks so he sloppy. Been he looks out of it. So yeah. I'm I'm wondering if that is more of a people piling on construction or if there are things that you're seeing that you would like to see more of or less of when it comes to Busquets. It's still the RSL game that stands out to me the most with Busquets, and it was more the the surrounding pieces that I thought stood out against the Galaxy for their struggles. But Busquets, along with Tomas Aviles in the back line, Diego Gomez, Gressel, it wasn't just Busquets, but Busquets was turning over the ball. And I, I don't know how those dispossessions are calculated by you know various data providers, but I can point to a sequence in the, I think it was in the first half, maybe it was the second half against RSL. It's in my notes somewhere from last week where Busquets just straight up loses the ball and it leads to a transition attack for RSL going the other way. And the way this Miami roster is constructed, 
They can't afford that stuff. Like they absolutely cannot afford those turnovers in those spots. The, the, ultimately though, I'm just not that bothered about it. Like I, I, Busquets is still Busquets. You, you look at these guys, like even Thierry Henry on the Champions League set for CBS, you give him a soccer ball, he's still elite, like globally elite when it comes to his skill on the ball. What you lose as you age is your athleticism. And Busquets has already lost that. He's already four steps slower than he was before. And he wasn't fast before. So that, that means when he does turn over the ball, he's in real trouble. But I don't think he's going to make a habit out of those kinds of turnovers. So I, I think but, Inter Miami are, are likely going to be fine with that stuff. And Busquets is going to be fine too. Well, the other thing that we haven't really talked about with Busquets specifically, because he's the only one who's in this exact case, but all of these players in general is like, Busquets has never played outside of his system. Right, He played for Barcelona his entire life and Spain. So not only are you taking him out of that system for the first time ever, you're doing it on a salary cap team, which means for all the money you spend at the top, you got to save money at the bottom. So like Tomas Avilas is a record-setting signing, but he is not Virgil van Dijk because it's not physically possible on MLS roster. Neither is Kristoff. Neither is Yedlin. So there might there, there are question marks of like, if not everyone can connect and link up and dominate possession and move the ball and tiki-taka and all that stuff. Can he fit into that? Can he do it at this age? But the other side is like, okay, well, he's Sergio Busquets. So for all the flaws, he's still an elite soccer player playing in a league where not everyone's an elite soccer player. I don't have answers to most of these questions. We're learning it all week by week. So I think that to me is more of the concerns than like Busquets, what he's doing with the ball and his possession numbers aren't, clean it's like does any of this work and I think we saw at the end of this game and we saw at the beginning of the RSL game is like when they're on the front foot when Alba's high when he's connecting when Messi's on the ball a ton it works can they do that for 90 minutes and when they don't do that are they still clean enough or are they still safe enough defensively to be able to win most of these games there we are gentlemen uh Joe did you want to talk galaxy for a little bit I, I just thought they were so good in this game. They were really, really fun to watch. And again, I mentioned Miami being a, a good matchup when they're not sharp in possession for everybody in MLS. But this is a new look Galaxy team. They are faster. They are quicker in transition. They won't play in transition quite this much in every game. Probably not this much in any game throughout this season. But their new wingers looked legit. Like Joseph Pencil on that on that right side to start the game playing as a, a traditional winger. And then shifting over to the left, cutting inside. Gabriel Peck looked way better than I thought he was going to, and I was already you know fairly high on him. Grain of salt, week one into Miami, all that stuff very much applies here. Maybe more than a grain, but this in, this LA Galaxy team is inarguably more talented this year than they were at any point last year. Yamane looks good at right back as well, early days still. But this team was pragmatic. They were sharp on the ball. They created a ton of chances. They would have been up three 0 if not for Drake Calendar in this game. Like they were really really sharp and way better. Like I said, than they looked at any point last year. Promising signs, early signs, but promising signs for the LA Galaxy. Joe, I would say I feel similar to the Red Bulls, what I said of like, everyone feels like an improvement on last year. So if I was a fan, I'd be positive. As a neutral watching, it's great, but it still feels like if they don't score goals, they can't win because we didn't see them have to defend in open space a ton, but it's still Casares and Yoshida at this age. It's still Surio, who is a fine MLS player, but not a great one until Brugman comes back and... You're talking about a player at his age coming back from knee injuries. You don't know how much of that happens. Still John McCarthy. So there are still holes. Payne still was, I thought, fantastic from midfield to the box. As I've said, I, I did not think he made the right 
decisions after that. A lot of shots from the edge of the box on no angle. But he hasn't played with these guys before. I did like Peck. And I feel good about that VSP. Because in like 12 minutes, he tried to either backheel everyone or take everyone on. And that's fun. And as Joe said, it's different. It's less plotting from the Galaxy. It's less get into the final third, reset possession, dominate, and move. It was a lot quicker. And if they can continue to be who they were last year while adding that, then it gives them different elements and ability to win the game. David Goss, thank you for your thoughts today. Joe Lowry, thank you for yours. Uh, I'm going to say we reviewed as much of MLS week one as I feel like we could get to in a timely manner. Commiserations to the teams that we did not mention. I think we will make an effort to talk about everybody at various points. Uh, So maybe next week we'll rotate in some other teams we didn't yet talk about. Uh, But I'm guessing Inter-Miami will still feature in the conversation as we go forward. Uh, Goss, I hope that is okay with you. I mean, my room that I'm recording in is basically Miami, so it's a home <laughs> team for me at this point. There we go. Uh, and Joe Lowry, uh, based on today, I'm going to guess that at various points in the season, we'll probably have some more Columbus Crew talk and definitely some more DC United talk. Yes to the first, and Taylor, as long as you're hosting, yes to the second. Hey, Let's go. there we go. Uh, listeners, thanks so much for listening. We greatly appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.